I had this beautiful conversation with the first person I ever hired, my first full-time employee last week. And we talked about this and peeled back the onion a little bit in a personal check-in. And she was like, you know, Sarah, like one of the things I was thinking about is you don't have to have an answer to every question that we ask. (laughs) And I so appreciated her for this, Katie. She was like, I mean, I'm going to ask because I want to know, but you don't have to feel like you always have it totally buttoned up. You can say, like, I'm not sure yet, but I really know that this is really important for me to have a partner of this kind. And this is going to be the best thing that's happened to us to continue to grow the company and add in. And like, that's cool with us. She's like, it's worse if you try to come up with an answer that sounds perfect, like you've got it all figured out if you don't. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and you are with me for episode number 122. Also the final episode in season three. It's also the sixth and final episode of my new series, As It Happens, where I talk to the same person two or three times over the space of many months as they're going through some important change in their lives and their business lives and their personal lives. Previous As It Happens episodes include two with students of mine starting or restarting their careers, Leah Parker Belfer and Catherine Keene. One with a young professor just getting her career off the ground in creative ways, the Dartmouth Dante and foodie expert, Danielle Caligari, which was last week's episode. And two with entrepreneurs and their startups, Kaylin Marcotte, the puzzle company called Jiggy, and Joyce Kadeska, who left Wall Street after only a few years to begin her mommy concierge business, Fam HQ. And now on this episode of the Sidcast, someone who is both an entrepreneur and a former student, a startup founder and a CEO who made it to Shark Tank, not to mention a veteran of the Iraq War, the woman who helped build out Warby Parker's retail stores, a Princeton University and Dartmouth College alum, a volunteer fighter fighter and EMT, and a mom, Sarah Apgar. Her story is powerful, as this brief bio sketch would suggest. But one thing I've learned is that while it's important to list someone's accomplishments so you, my friends and listeners, can create some kind of picture in your head of who Sarah is and what she's like, it misses who that person really is. I can tell you that Sarah is deeply passionate about life and about helping others. I can tell you that Sarah, with all her incredible accomplishments at still a young age, is humble, yet proud, aware of what she doesn't know, yet super competent, has as full a plate of business and professional activities as any one of us might have, but is still the primary caregiver to her kids. But it's really by listening to Sarah, to our conversation, that a fuller picture will emerge. And that can't just be listed on a sheet of paper or recited by me in this introduction. Sarah is the founder of Fit Fighter, a company that, as she says, celebrates the spirit of service, delivers world-class tools and training, and provides you with a lifelong family who cares about your health and well-being. The Fit Fighter Steel Hose System is a complete full-body strength, power, and conditioning program originally designed actually to prepare firefighters for the rigors of their job, something Sarah picked up on when she volunteered as a firefighter. And as all true 
entrepreneurs and creative people. She saw a problem and she's come up with a solution. And the solution is now become the Fit Fighter company. From firefighters to the rest of us, Fit Fighter has adapted their equipment and their training programs to a wider population. The promise, the Fit Fighter is the most versatile, durable strength product on the market for trainers, coaches, athletes, healthcare, and homes. That is what she's striving to attain. You know, I'll be honest, I really do like Sarah. I admire her. And I know what kind of role model she is for many. And hopefully after listening to this series of conversations, maybe even a role model for you or or for your kids or for other people that you know. I talked to Sarah at three different junctures, starting about a year ago in late December, 2020, and wrapping up two and a half months ago in late October, 2021. We'll learn much more about who Sarah is, what her startup is, and why she decided to become an entrepreneur with this particular type of business. And then we're gonna follow her for almost a year as she thinks and rethinks, learns and pivots, all the while driven by a mission that underlies her entire business philosophy, her mindset, her purpose in life. Okay, here's Sarah Apgar, first segment of our three-part conversation on the SITCAST. Welcome to the SITCAST. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I have with me Sarah Apgar. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sid. It's so good to have you on our little series, As It Happens. And let's see, what's today? It's just before Christmas. I think it's December 23rd. So we're going to talk about what's been going on with you and the startup of yours called Fit Fighter. And then we'll check in a couple of times later to see how things have continued to develop. So first of all, what's Fit Fighter? Fit Fighter has now become a way of life. We have a signature piece of strength training equipment called the Steel Hose and a strength program that I've adapted from originally being designed for firefighters and first responders to better prepare themselves for their mental, physical, and emotional response on the fire ground now to be applicable to athletes, trainers, coaches, professionals, and the general public. This is a very much a garage founding story, homegrown. I'm happy to tell you more about that founding story if you'd like. So what is it? What is the product? So the steel hose is a piece of real fire hose that ranges from two to three feet long. That fire hose is nylon on the outside and synthetic rubber on the inside filled with a very beautiful metal that's a flowing steel shot. It's a perfectly round millimeter wide piece of steel. And so it flows like water, but it's five times as dense. And so you can imagine if you're trying to mimic the skills of dragging fire hose on the fire ground and creating the strength and stability required for that job, using real fire hose was the perfect approach. And so suddenly what happened was when we started to build these steel hoses in my garage and started to use them on the fire ground, we raised a lot of eyebrows because what trainers and coaches and other folks who are fitness enthusiasts started to realize is that this had applications and benefits and value far beyond training firefighters for their work. And really what we were doing is training the fundamentals of human strength and stability for at whatever level might be required for you. How long is this thing? Ranges from the five pound is 20 inches long, ranging up to the 50 pound hose, which is up to 38 inches long. Where do you get this idea from? When I joined the fire service, the volunteer fire service, I was looking to build community and camaraderie back into my life. I'd missed the military, which is my first career 
out of my undergraduate education. And I always loved the military lifestyle. I think if it weren't for the era that I had been in the military in 2003 to 2008 timeframe, which of course were those two initial OIF-1 and OIF-2, as we called them at the time, and the deployment cycle associated with those, I think I probably would have stayed in quite a bit longer. I think I would have enjoyed a military career. And so I was looking to have that back in my life, even though I had transitioned and gone to Tuck, had done my MBA, gotten involved with early stage companies. During my first stint at an early stage company at Warby Parker, which had just actually launched a year prior to my leaving Tuck, I also joined the volunteer fire service to regain some of what I felt like I was missing that void and noticed that there was a chasm between the fitness training that we were doing in preparation and what really happened out there on the fire ground. So I started, I've always been an athlete and a fitness enthusiast and a military gal. And so I started to design programs and tools that would better prepare us for that job. And one of the tools that I developed in that time was tinkering with fire hose itself to mimic the movements and the tools that we were using on the fire ground. You're making me think about whether there are other tools in other industries that would mimic what is already used there. So firefighter tools, that's for firefighting. There's lots of other fields where something might be created. Yeah, that's actually a fascinating point because I think what's a little funny about the story is the simplicity and the beauty and the novelty of what we see for the general public version, like the commercial version of the steel hose. That's because we've sort of taken the fire hose outside of its home and outside of its like happy place. And we've taken it and sort of inserted it into people's lives, which is very novel and new. But, you know, for the fire ground, that was not a huge big idea. It was like we're using fire hose to train for firefighting. It's not super novel. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an interesting point that if we one of the themes that I love talking about is the curiosity and the creativity and the problem solving and the sort of dogged stubbornness that came with developing this tool over two years time and I think if we were to take that same approach and look at other industries and like the crossover that exists, there probably are other big opportunities like that, too, for innovation. Right. What you're saying is the thing that makes it attractive is it's unusual for most people. Yeah. And that's the market. So your business model is selling the product, but there's also a subscription model connected to it, a service model. Yeah. And for me, that's the more important part. When we think about strength training and we think about keeping people healthy and ready, we have a lot of different tools in our industry to do that. There's a lot of free weights out there. There's a lot of all kinds of handy gyms and sort of things that have been developed. And in the end, a tool is really dead and dormant until it's given training and education that enables someone to use it for their benefit. And so for me, the training curriculum that we've developed that's very robust and provides hundreds of hours of training through our platform and the live experiences that I do personally, that I give people a chance to understand the roots of where we came from, the philosophy and curriculum behind our training, and then why it applies to them. And I really talk them through that. And they have this really cool new steel hose in their hands that's safe and durable and that's really neat to touch and feel. And that's when things start to come alive. So I think the training platform, from a business model standpoint, we really think of this as a combined opportunity for someone to get a great tool and then have a membership for life, I hope, of fitfighterlife.com, which is our on-demand platform. I like to think of it as a Netflix for strength because we have on-demand 
opportunities. And then we have specialty programs and I give live experiences personally so that I can really stay connected. It's very interesting you use Netflix as an analogy. I'm thinking Peloton and probably in the fitness space. I'm going to guess there are a lot of businesses that are trying to do something that combine a product. I mean, Peloton bike is a very expensive item uh, compared to the hose, no doubt. But combine that product with a very cool kind of social community, a subscription model and lots of opportunity to practice and use that tool. So how common is it now in the fitness industry? Is this where fitness has gone now as what's needed to get people to start exercising a little bit more? Well, it's interesting. My answer to you this time last year would have been different because now we've just experienced this incredible shift in folks not being able to get out there into their gym. We've seen billions of dollars come out of the market of gym memberships. People are going to the gym and they have their membership that way. And so what it's done is really exploded companies that have developed products that you can have in your home and then still get that coaching and that personal touch that you had when you went to the gym and met with your personal trainer or whatever you're doing. So Peloton and Mirror and Total and a lot of these in-home systems, so to speak, absolutely have gone that model. And their message to you is that you don't need your gym anymore because you have your membership with us. You've got your coach right there on your bike. And I would say something similar, although there's a distinctive difference. One, you noted is price point. So for me, the reason I use Netflix as my analogy is because Netflix is for everyone, at least the basic membership. $10 a month is what we charge for people to come onto our platform. And that's purposeful. I'd like for there to be millions of people on our platform because this is so basic and so fundamental and not something that is niche with a $2,000 or $3,000 price point which is what most of those other home systems are. And so that in and of itself is creating a specific part of the market that's applicable to a steel bows, on the other hand, is $50 or $65. Our membership is $10 a month. So my goal is to touch people who have never, ever, ever lifted a free weight before and have never, ever, ever been in a gym and have never signed up for a subscription for anything related to their health and wellness. Those are the people I think we can reach with the steel bows because of the nature of it. So, Sarah, you have your startup. You talk about Warby Parker, which is really exciting. It's not a startup anymore, I guess, after these years, but it certainly was one that caught everybody's attention. Do you come from an entrepreneurial background? Were your parents entrepreneurs? Because you went to business school, which is the anti-entrepreneurial thing to do in many ways. <laughs> Being a business school professor, I can get away with that. Even though many people like yourself have actually created businesses, it's a totally different stepping stone. Yeah, just tuck no, we're talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're going to love it. So where do you think this entrepreneurial gene is coming from in your case? Yeah, the bug. I think it's two things. Number one, absolutely the modeling of parents and in particular my dad, who was an entrepreneur his whole life, had a brand his own company from a little converted garage next to our house when I was growing up. And so I always watched him running his own company, working 24-7, coming on vacation, but sneaking away for a few hours for phone calls in the morning. And it was a lifestyle that I watched I grew up with. And so I think that you absorb a lot of what you know based on your upbringing. And the second thing is I do think that there absolutely is an undeniable personality and sort of personal characteristic traits, sort of set of traits that I think that entrepreneurs share probably in some way that are innate, not that you couldn't learn them or develop them or sort of morph them. But I think that curiosity I mentioned blended with this almost like a stubbornness that you sort of wish sometimes you didn't have and the level of persistence to just keep going and keep the lights on when probably others might have closed the door and walked away. I think that does take something that is just a personality. I would self-identify with that. You have kids yourself, right? 
I do. I have two little girls. Are they old enough to be watching what mom is doing and maybe getting some of that same kind of modeling that you got from your own dad? I hope so. I'm trying to do my best to make sure that FitBiter is a part of their lives and that they're watching. Emery's four and Arlen's three, so really young. But I do think that they start to get a sense. They understand what I do and they understand that this is something that I talked to them about something that I created and I talked to them about things that they create. I'm trying to instill that and I'm trying to do that for other young women. And one of the coolest things about Chart Tank was the opportunity to stand up on this huge national stage and talk about that journey and be that example. I mean, we have people writing in to our customer experience team just to tell us how inspired they were and how much they hope someday that they can be an entrepreneur too. And that's the stuff that brings you to tears. We're wetting the appetite of listeners because you dropped the shark tank and we're going to talk about that. But you've been through COVID as a company and it could not have been easy. And I'd like you to share a little bit about what that journey is, the pre-shark tank journey in particular, because here's an interesting model. Here's a really talented person that knows a lot about business and has come up with a niche product, has a model that is potentially scalable, but it couldn't have been easy, especially in the COVID summer. Yeah. And what was interesting about COVID for Fitfighter is that I think there are two real threads that our listeners will find particularly interesting. One is that I had built the business model for a B2B rollout strategy. So I had originally known that I wanted to see the steel hose as a true legacy product in our industry that would trickle down from the top of the pyramid it would be embraced and validated by the top influencers and coaches and trainers in the business. And that was important to me because I did feel that given where we started and what we found to be the impact, that the rest of the world would see that too. Last thing I'm going to do is spend two years not taking a salary, developing this new product and going through this and then have it be something that's just sort of sits in people's closets or, you know, is the next sort of handy gym or shake weight. No offense to any of those things. So I had launched with proof of concept from gyms and gym chains and trainers and coaches and boutique gym owners. Then the plan was roll this out at the NBA Strength and Conditioning Show, Idea Fit and URSA, which is the major international fitness conference, and really launch the product to tens of thousands of trainers and coaches that way and start to grow sort of a slower growth path for B2B business. And that was January. That was a big 2020 plan. So we really had to completely pivot because that entire plan was shut down. People were not going to be together. People weren't going to gather. I wasn't going to launch the product in that way. You have to touch and feel this product. So launching it virtually, that was definitely not going to happen. And so what we did was realize a goal that I thought we would have two or three years down the road once we really established the brand and the product. And we started to sell directly to consumers in their homes and to try to help keep them safe and strong when they couldn't go to the gym either and to mm -hmm. let them realize the benefits directly. So that brings me to the second big point, which is the problem with that was that I was very undercapitalized for that type of rollout model, especially competing with the Pelotons of the world and those who had much greater brand exposure and a lot more dollars to put behind the exposure for that and the marketing and education. So that explosive combination of having to reinvent the business model and then also not have resources to really do that the right way meant that we sort of limped along. We did get some great proof of concept from our consumers. We have people who train with me now every week who started back in that third week in March and have been with us ever since. Those are wonderful, wonderful VIP golden family members. 
There were times in May, June timeframe where we were weeks away from having to just shut the doors and say, I gave it my best go. I mean, literally just running out of money, plain and simple. Those were some dark, dark days to try to get through. Anyway, happy to talk, you know, more about that. But when it comes to the sort of emotional and the sort of when rubber meets the road and those decisions you have to make as the entrepreneur and how do you get through it, those were definitely some trying times. Yeah. And you have people who work for you, of course, talking to a lot of entrepreneurs over the years. Well, actually, even bigger companies. It's the people who work for them that really affects them. They might not have the same opportunities that the entrepreneur has, that you have, almost certainly not the same background. They need the job and they believe in you. And Having to say we gave it our best shot, but it's not working is extremely difficult. Is that what happened? I mean, you didn't get to that stage, but you were close to it. Yeah, we were really close. We took a PPP loan. We had employees that went a couple of months without being paid. I was still not paying myself a salary at the time. I knew that I had a two-year runway I'd given myself to basically draw down our savings. The hardest part, I think, was just really keeping your own heart and mind in a place of optimism and continue day in and day out to exude that and share that, even though I'm a super positive, energetic person. I mean, gosh, like that was the most I've ever been challenged to do that with these people who are like coming to work. And we had it in our factory, of course, we kind of shifted our schedule around and made sure to keep everyone safe. My production manager wasn't even coming in and she runs production. That's because we have a small factory and we needed to have the guys in there working and building our product. And so all of those things make the operation more expensive. It makes things more difficult for people. We can't stay as connected. So all of those challenging stories about COVID you hear about, we faced. And the people part is absolutely undeniably the hardest part. And it's your responsibility to keep captaining that ship and try not to let it sink. And that's really real. For me, as a person who used to look up to entrepreneurs and always have wanted to have my own company and do this successfully, it's hard to ever put yourself in the shoes of when you finally get there. <laughs> you're going through that like it's impossible. You can't. And then you go through it and you're like, wow, I asked for this. So <laughs> careful what you wish for. It's even more than you dreamed of in every way. Then Shark Tank started to come on. How does somebody get on Shark Tank? Let's start with that. How did that happen? Did you campaign for this? Did they discover you? I mean, how does that work? So there are multiple ways to get on Shark Tank. So you can do a public casting call, literally go. There's cities around the country where you can, anybody who wants to step up to the plate can have 60 seconds of fame and pitch their idea. You can also submit a video submission online for your company. And in our case, at the end of May, we got a phone call from the Shark Tank producers. And she said, hey, I'm from Shark Tank and I've looked, we're watching what you're doing and we see your product and we think this is really interesting and we like to have conversation. I almost didn't believe it because it was right at that time that it was for us this pinnacle moment. And I was like, okay, I'll play this tape out to the end. <laughs> like, you know, like I'll see what happens with this. So I just said, okay, let's see what this is about, but obviously not keep my eye on the ball and not get my hopes up too far. And then over the next six weeks, we had a series of interviews with a series of different producers. We produced financial documents for the company. You know, they really do a significant amount of diligence, even during this kind of interviewing process. On July 16th, got a phone call that they wanted to move forward with a pitch and that we were going to have an opportunity to pitch the company. You pinch yourself at that point. 
We could talk in as much detail as we want, but we'll need hours and a cup of coffee. But we then had this sort of month period of time ahead of time where there was a quarantine. So I had to quarantine for 10 days in the hotel room, series of COVID testing. Sony Pictures had moved its studios entirely, you know, shut down one studio and completely ramped up another studio so they could have a COVID bubble and still film. And it took a village because my mom, who we hadn't seen much of my parents at that point throughout COVID, and they came down from Massachusetts and stayed for two weeks at my home because my husband is a surgeon and he can't just be nine to five and get the girls after school, you know, or summer camp. So my parents came down, stayed with the girls, and I went away for two weeks, culminating in this August 12th taping of the show, The Pitch. Wow. And so everyone is in a bubble. You don't have to wear a mask when you're there and the sharks either. It's almost like a bubble you hear about for sports, right? For the NBA or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like they did in Orlando. We did have to wear a mask when we were in still the public spaces, but not for the pitch itself, which was nice. And then obviously you're just in your hotel room by yourself with meals being delivered for nine days before the pitch. So that in and of itself is just fascinating when it comes to thinking about like the mindset of preparation and I haven't taken enough time to really truly reflect. I did use an app journal like on day one, the day one app where you can sort of audio journal just to try to capture as much as I could of that time, because that's definitely once in a lifetime, you know, it's crazy. That's right. (laughs) And so you walk down that hallway that they show you on TV or then you show up and you say, hello, sharks, and then you do your pitch. Mm -hmm. And were you surprised by the questions that you got and the reaction that you got? I had done a significant amount of preparation on previous episodes and then really categorizing all the different question types, investment questions, questions about obviously the business ventures itself, the story, you know, the vision. So I had done a significant amount, but it was hard to have all of those questions firing away at all completely different cadence, out of order, right? And so you would sort of talk about the story and then immediately shift towards shipping issues and fulfillment issues, and then talking about pricing costs, supply chain costs, and then the training program and the app. And it felt like you were sort of being just tomatoed. And so you just had to do the best you can. Just control it was almost like crowd management was the hardest part, you know, of the whole thing and very exciting, very fast paced. And I think the questions that were the hardest are those that are the least straight forward and for which you could talk for a very long time, you know, about your vision and the different ways that you can communicate your vision when you're at this early stage. Those were hard. I think tried to distill things into one or two pithy sentences that you prepare and that does best. But I did find myself wishing I had a little more time for every single conversation topic. What usually happens is that some of the sharks pass early on and then the ones most serious get into it. Was that disheartening to see that two or three said no pretty quick? Yeah, I remember that being a surreal experience, thinking to myself, I mean, you walk in and you have a dream, you do the mental imagery ahead of time, and you sort of have this dream that there'll be five-way fight over. They're falling over each other (laughs) to invest with Sarah, exactly. To like invest in your company, because obviously you have the coolest idea since sliced bread. You have that, and so when you start to have that real-time experience, that was absolutely jarring 
And it's funny because when folks watch the episode, they do a great job of really magnifying those moments right before the commercial. And people have asked me a lot about like, what did you, what you feel in that moment? Or were you like upset that they showed that? And I'm like, well, it's kind of what I signed up for. <laughs> it's television. I mean, what do you want? <laughs> you have to right? kind of be prepared for that. How long was your actual FaceTime with them compared to how long they created the clip? How much time they used for the clip? It's much more drawn out in person. I would say it was in there for probably 45 wow. minutes. Wow. And it boils down to five minutes, give or take, when you're watching on TV. Yeah. The first time I saw the segment was when you saw it. It was like I was watching the edit and watching this play out. They had changed around sentences and reordered things wow. compared to what was in person. And so I was sort of sitting there being also surprised. So that was a weird experience, too. So the deal is made. You had one shark that invested with you, right? Obviously, you're very happy about that. What happens right afterwards? I'm curious about that. Is there more due diligence that happens or the lawyers have lined up the paperwork already? There is due diligence. I mean, just as you'd expect for any kind of investment, I think venture or angel or otherwise, obviously differing degrees of diligence. But in this case, really taking the documentation I provided before Shark Tank, which seemed to be sort of a gateway, sort of a minimum level of, hey, are you even doing running your books type of thing? And then we went through a proper month-long due diligence process, looking at the business. Very instructive for me because now I was working with Daniel's team and his investment office and learning a lot about my own company through this diligence process. We really did a lot of analysis and supply chain work and business model considerations and talking through what that long game was in ways that, not that I hadn't thought about it before, but certainly in terms of financial analysis, which has never been my strength anyway, that was definitely instructive. And I felt immediately that I was swallowed into this really wonderful, supportive, big team structure from otherwise being a very small, early stage, tiny little ant. It's just very, very neat experience. And it took us about eight to 10 weeks, I would say, to complete that process and ultimately close the investment and get prepared for the show. So in fact, it's possible that the deal would not have gone through if you didn't have a meeting in the minds or they saw things that they were not happy with. And presumably that happens occasionally as well. I think they're, yeah, reasonably open and transparent about that, that this is a handshake type of thing. And that if there's something that's uncovered or found, which, of course, is a incentive to just really be as open a book as you feel right. that you can on national TV and for the sake of getting an investment. They say that it's truly what the show says, which is that you walk in and for the first time they're learning about your company. I guess there probably have been instances where a deal is done during the taping, but afterwards it falls apart. That show never airs, in fact. I'm sure that must happen. What was the impact of Shark Tank when that show went on? Man, just rocket ship. We went from back in the May-June days for almost closing the doors. We had had throughout the year until the episode aired, we had had 150,000 in sales. So it's not that we had had no activity. And again, through half of that was through that COVID-19 sort of real crunch time period when um, fitness was really a, something that a lot of people were turning towards. So we had had some, but then since we went on the show and we just watched really, really fun because there's three time airings because they have East Coast and Central Time and West Coast. So we were able to just watch from our command center where we were looking for sales, looking for patterns, looking for how people were shopping. We had a customer experience team that stood up within a matter of weeks 
to respond to the customer inquiries. And we'll be close to a million dollars in revenue by the end of the year just from this experience in this crazy, epic six-week period of time. So it's everything that I think you sort of see on a Shark Tank commercial is really true. Because I think the exposure, I think if people resonate with you, for us, what was really magical is the feedback we get is people love our product. This is an awesome, unique thing in our world. But they also, more feedback is around the fact that they're just really inspired. The story resonates. This is a wonderful idea about being prepared, mission ready for what you need to get done in your life. You know, raise your kids, take care of your mom, chase after whatever, run up the stairs, stay healthy, not get COVID or its severe life-changing impacts. I mean, if there's ever a time when FitFighter and our message is relevant, it's right now at this moment. And I think that resonated with people. I'm excited to really carry that forward. So let's talk about carrying it forward because we're going to reconnect in two or three months. Oh boy. So this is not exactly <laughs> Shark Tank, but what are we going to see in two or three months? What should we be looking for when we check in with you? All right. So we are going to be launching our 2.0 version of our training platform, which, as I mentioned, is the single most important thing for us to grow the community and to make sure that people know how to use the tool we've just put in their hands. So that's going to come out January 1st. And my single effort in Q1 is to get as many, many, many people as possible, new customers, and then, of course, non-customers to be on a part of that platform, build that community, live train with them personally, talk to them, reach them. Second big initiative is a couple of big partnership efforts in retail, in e-com, third-party channels, really get our product, which nobody else makes. And nobody else, of course, makes anything like it. So that channel partnerships would be really important for us to reach bigger audiences. So that's going to be number two. And we have a couple that I think we'll probably be able to talk about when we talk next that I hope I'll be able to get to the finish line and then we can talk about those. And they're a result of working with Daniel's team and of our exposure from Shark Tank. And then the third big initiative is also on January 1st, which, oh my gosh, is in 10 days. We're going to be launching our first level one curriculum for fitness professionals. So if you're a trainer or a coach and you want to bring steel hose training to your athletes or your team, we have a seminar and a curriculum and master instructors who have come on board with us and we'll train those professionals so that then they can reach their clients. They have a great new fresh resource going into 2021. And we've continued to establish ourselves as best in class product and training system. Those are the three big ones. Peanuts, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Wow. We're locking down and putting into the safe the recording of this podcast. No one's going to hear that until the time comes. So are you willing to go on secret record in the podcast what that revenue number might look like when we talk, say, end of February, beginning of March? I'm hoping that we'll double the revenue from Shark Tank in another quarter. To me, would be a great goal. You'd be very happy with that. Yes. 100% growth by quarter. That's not bad. Right. I would be happy with that. And I don't think that that's far-fetched. I really don't think that's far-fetched. We'll see. But I think that we have, with the opportunities we're creating, leveraging where we've just come from, that might be the aggressive number and the conservative number would probably be half that. I'm comfortable thinking that this rocket ship will keep flying and it's up to me. I can't wait to talk again. <laughs> <laughs> 
when we do talk, we'll get the update. I'm sure there'll be many things that are not on the radar that happen because that's the way it works. And it'll be exciting also to hear more about your partnership with Daniel and how that's working out as well, because he's the guy that created Kind, didn't he? The entire enterprise around it and the health bar sector that has become gigantic. And he's been one of the innovators and extremely successful there. The fact that he would invest with you is quite interesting. And there's a health dimension there. Do you think that was part of the trigger for him? I mean, he liked the idea. He liked you. That goes without saying. But why him and not one of the others, do you think? And then we'll wrap up. No, it's a good question. I mean, and I've talked a little bit about that directly. And I feel that he had a twinkle in his eye the whole time. That might sound like a little sort of funny or cheesy, but his questions were largely around the long game and around what this vision is to really shift the paradigm of what strength means for people and to get us away from this squeezing in a 40-minute workout of whatever that means where we're pumping iron and doing reps and sets and really something that instead is sort of threaded into the fabric of our lives. And I think that resonated with him. I think the kind mission is very similar when it comes to the reason for that being. And so I think there was some brand synergy. And then I think ultimately there was a real similar personal investment in what my long-term story-eyed vision is. So I think that seemed to resonate with him. Yeah, this is great. Sarah Apgard, thank you so much for taking the time. Have a wonderful holiday with your family. Thank you, Sarah. And uh, we will be talking to you in two or three months. I can't wait. Thanks. Now you know a bit more about Sarah, don't you? And you know what she was looking to accomplish when we talked way back in December of 2020. This is really a classic as it happens because Sarah has just shared with us her goals. And now we know what she's trying to do. And now we get to see how she and Fit Fighter have moved forward. So the second conversation took place in April 2021, four months after the first segment. But for us in real time right now, you don't have to wait four months. You're about to find out exactly what happened and how things worked out in the first four months of our conversation. Let's roll the tape. Okay, we're back in the SITCAST round two with Sarah Apgar. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Sid. So it's been, let's see, I think about four months. Today is April 22nd as we speak, and we did talk in December. There's some interesting news because I think just a week or so ago, give or take, you were back on TV with an update on Shark Tank. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, happy to. So we had an amazing opportunity to share some of the rocket ship success that we had in that first launch in November by way of a same season update, which is basically a two and a half minute commercial. What was so fun about this for me was that obviously in our first pitch in November, that was me out there getting slammed by Cuban and company in the limelight and sort of standing there doing my business pitch and presenting the product, but wasn't also the comprehensive story about the brand and the growth of the brand the direct-to-consumer brand that we were building and vision and, and sort of all of the Tunnel to Towers contribution that I was finally able to make a reality. And so all of those aspects of what we're doing, which are so much deeper than pitching a great product, I think were highlighted in this update. And so that was really wonderful. And I was really appreciative of the opportunity to come back on and have the audience just a few months later see how we were starting to build out the rest of that vision. And because as we talked about the first time we spoke, I've never thought of Fit Fighter as just a product, hard asset company. 
I don't think I would invest my life in that. I think there's a lot of great companies that produce, you know, great products, but ultimately this is a lifestyle change and shift and rethinking the paradigms around fitness and wellness that I'm trying to lead. So it's been really wonderful to see all of that come to fruition over the last few months and presented again on ABC primetime. Yeah, nothing like a two and a half minute commercial with so many people. I mean, it has huge viewership, Shark Tank. Was it unusual to be on so quickly? I mean, it seems like that, but I don't know. It was, right? Definitely was. Daniel lobbied hard based on, again, just having this great success. We had 10,000 new customers within just a few months, over a million dollars in sales within those 30, 45 days after the show. So I think he saw it as a special opportunity to try to get sort of another really great chance to highlight what we're doing. And all of the work we were able to do just in those few short months because of that success, that brought opportunities to meet our Dick Sporting Goods Partnership, which we've just launched, which I can share today as a big piece of that update, a whole new line of business with the third bricks and mortar retail channel and all those other things. So I think it was unusual, the same season update, and I'm extremely grateful. It was a rat race to try to get that all filmed, but I'm grateful. I do want to talk about the new partnership and other things that we kind of left off in round one that are now coming to fruition and more. But I'm curious about how you've managed to ramp up. Were you ready for a million dollars in sales in a matter of a month and a half? Because you had to have a lot of systems in place to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, that's like the $64 million question, so to speak. I had prepared, you know, because I knew some precedent around what Shark Tank could do for a company, I definitely went out over my skis a little bit by some measures in terms of the preparation on the inventory side. We still drowned in the production and fulfillment of that many units in that short of a period of time. But at least I definitely had been aggressive about the preparation, knowing that if it didn't meet the expectations, the sort of rose colored expectations that I had had, that at least we were then well positioned, you know, and had used a good portion of the capital that we had brought in for things like inventory and ramping up a customer experience team so that we could serve our customers and bring members onto the, our training platform. And there's a lot of other aspects of this business than selling steel hoses with our subscription membership and our community building and our training and our pros and our level one professional curriculum and all those things. I was very aggressive about that and proactive about it. And we still drowned and it took us probably 60 to 90 days to kind of climb back out of the deep end. The phase I think we're in now in phase two talking on the SIDCast is really building the infrastructure for the future finally. It was sort of survival mode for a while, for a few months. And now we're looking back and saying, okay, where were the gaping holes? Where do we really miss the boat? Where do we make big mistakes? And what are things that now we need to set in place so we can really build the company and start to really build that vision more systematically and strategically versus the sort of shot out of a cannon style that Shark Tank just kind of naturally like thrusts you into. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't recognize there's a kind of like a paradox of success at various times in a company's growth. And you've been going through an early one when things hit. There's an expectation, especially today with Amazon, that if you order something, it's showing up and it's showing up right away. And there's just no question about that. When you disappoint customers, sometimes they don't give you a second chance. Of course, you want that type of problem because it means business booming. But it's something I think people sometimes underestimate. You didn't underestimate it. Even then, I think, as you just said, it was probably even more challenging than you had to deal with that. Tell us some of the metrics. You mentioned 10,000 new subscribers that you were saying? New customers, new customers. steel hose purchasers. And about 10% of that community are also members of our community, our online training platform. 
So this is a digital platform, classes.fitfighter.com, that you can join. I like to think of it as a Fitfighter Netflix. So this is where we have our on-demand portal with video training in all these different training categories, strength, conditioning, mobility, grip strength. I have a series of pros that films this training. I then once a week on Fitfighter Fridays do my own live performances. And I like to think of them as performances versus just workouts because I hop up on my studio stage in our factory and provide a strength workout, a flow workout using our product. I do a lot of product education. Our members have an opportunity to actually come train live with me, interactive live chatting during the experience. The reason I say Netflix is because we then also have specialty training bundles. We have programs dedicated to specific types of athletes, like a youth basketball program or like a pre-postnatal program for women. And so we've developed strength training that's specific to different demographics that we know that we serve so that if someone wants something that's really quite targeted, your kids training for their basketball season or you're a postnatal mom, you necessarily need to come on our platform month over month. But we've got some great training options for you with 30 days worth of strength to kind of get you started. We have about 10% of our customers as members. I mean, obviously, I'd love for that to be 98%. So that's something that I'm really working on building. I think about mistakes and things that we missed the boat on first time around. I think we just weren't well set up with that infrastructure you were talking about to really capture and start building that community. And we were small and didn't have everything all set up. So it's something I'm really focused on now in Q2. How has the count of employees changed in this time? Times three. We've tripled the team. Wow. (laughs) Tripled the team. And what's funny about that is you still only have six full-time employees, the company. So mm-hmm. I basically hired you know, myself and my production manager when we launched on Shark Tank. And then we've tripled that team to six. But that's also under-representing how big the company's gotten because from the standpoint of people involved and agencies involved, because we also have outsourced customer experience support right to an agency. In fact, we use a service called Chapdesk which was started by a tech graduate. And they're fulfilling some of our customer service needs because it's very flexible and adaptable and something that's helpful for us right now. We also are outsourcing our entire digital marketing function. So I have a branding agency that works on creative, freelance, social media person. I have a paid media agency and email marketing agency. And those are all outsourced services right now. Because what I found is at the beginning, it's great to have this wonderful, hardworking, scrappy team of six that has a core function, but also hands in every pot. And then these core competencies and specialties that are external, that you know what they do, you know what their job is, you know what the scope is. And it's just flexible and adaptable right now as we figure out how we're going to grow over the next year. Yeah, that's interesting. I think these outsourced partners, there's such a deep expertise available now. And it's so easy to access them. You mentioned, you know, the customer service and marketing and digital and all the rest. You don't have to do it all yourself. That's an important lesson. I mean, you might choose to later, depending on where the real value is. But the fact that you can grow without having to add all that headcount is a big deal. You make the product yourself. You have your own factory or you outsource that. So we did make the product ourselves in Port Washington, where I'm headquartered We had a small factory that was a little more workshop than factory. But for that first year and a half, the company, right up until that Shark Tank launch, we made the product exclusively here in New York. Then in preparation for that Shark Tank launch, I partnered with a manufacturer, exercise equipment in South Carolina. I wanted to keep the product made in the USA. That was very important to me, given our roots and the U.S. Fire Service. I also really liked the idea of controlling the product that way. 
I like the carbon initiative around that because, gosh, I make a heavy product and send it halfway around the world is not something that right now makes sense to me. It's a very high quality product. So that's something we're working on in terms of cogs and the pricing structure. But even so, high quality things like double recycled steel shot and double jacketed fire hose with nylon and synthetic rubber and brass grommets and the things we use is what makes our product so good and so high quality and so durable. And so it's very important to me to maintain that and solve for the business problems in other areas rather than say, okay, we have to shave 80% off the cost of goods right off the bat. That's something we're working with Sornex on now. 98% of what we do is made in South Carolina. The only thing I'm doing still in New York is custom product. So if a gym or a trainer or a franchise wants a custom, almost powered by or private label type of steel hose, that's a specialty. I still make that in New York. I know how to do it there. But ultimately, I want to outsource that as well so that I'm not in the manufacturing business um, and can focus on growing the other areas of the company. So that really raises the question, what are you? What is your company that you do and will continue to maintain? And I could think of some of the answers just from talking to you, but I'd like to get kind of your take on it because you've outsourced lots of stuff, mm-hmm. I think wisely, but what's left for you? Yeah, what's left for us is owning an entirely new discipline of movement, a new channel, a new category that we've created of strength training, owning and leading that into the market. I mean, that is where my special sauce is. That's my core value, bringing that to market, sharing that with the industry, building our community and our membership and fighter family. I always say to people, I think of myself as a team captain style CEO. When I think about my strengths and limitations as a leader, absolutely, it's the visionary and creative behind the product, the training, the programming, the platform, the community, and what we want to be for people. I would say that's number one. And then number two is managing all of the different channels that ultimately we will have as partners because our product is so versatile and has so many different applications. This is something that can ultimately, I mean, we've just launched bricks and mortar retail. This can be used in team settings, tactical training settings. We can do private labeling for other brands who have strength training platforms, other digital platforms like a mirror, for example, third-party digital that hosts different types of classes and types of workouts. The list is endless. And I think the biggest challenge for us right now is really to focus so that we can keep growing our core competencies. But that's really where we're going to add value myself and then internal to our team and for everything else that can be done by someone else who's better at it. You know, for now, I'm happy to have that model. All right. Sounds like vision, strategic focus, coordination and good old fashioned leadership, which is always at the top. You never could outsource that. I think it's actually a good lesson for a lot of companies and a lot of not just startups. I've seen it for years, how companies fall into this thing of trying to do too many things themselves and they're not the best in the world at all those things. So why do it? Why not partner with others that could do a better job than you can and focus on the things others can't replicate easily or hopefully at all? How's it gone with Daniel, your uh, your Shark Tank partner? How involved is he? Like, I'm sure a lot of people are curious. They make the deal, they show up, they have the brand name, they open up some doors, but what's going on day to day with him? I'll speak for myself. I'm sure it varies. But with Daniel, what's really interesting is that Daniel is first and foremost a founder himself, has founded a number of companies and grown them, obviously, most recently kind and has just sold that actually since we talked, has sold that to Mars. That's really neat. I'm not sure that I realized just an investor, but also sort of mentor from a founder standpoint. 
understands what it's like to be in this chair fairly recently. And also with a company that makes a product like Kind Bars, he's quite involved, extremely accessible by text and email anytime, responds, seems to read and respond to every single communication that goes outbound from me, which I'm really grateful for, usually at like three in the morning. So you get a sense, I feel like he's 24 hours a day. And we have a monthly meeting with our teams in which we're reviewing that last month's activities, performance. He's my biggest cheerleader, for sure, is providing his network, making that available to me, has provided people to interview, strategic partners for me to consider. It's one of the things I'm looking for, searching for for me is a COO who will be a strategic partner who can come on board and really be almost like a co-founder figure for me and bolster some of those limitations I think that I have, which definitely extend into that operations and finance areas of the company. And so he's provided a lot of referrals and folks to start talking to since obviously to find the perfect strategic partner marriage is going to be something that's very important, special and take a little while. So in all of those ways, just feels like a great support. We actually did a note, took on some debt funding in the form of a note to sort of follow on the initial investment of capital so that we could invest more in inventory and start growing the team and doing some of the things that I've been talking about. That is our single biggest challenge right now while we're still working on getting our margin where we need it to be and scaling and growing, launching in bricks and mortar retail. I mean, our biggest problem is cash flow. Our biggest problem is capital. And so that's for 2021. Our investment strategy and fundraising considerations are a huge part of what I'm focused on. Yeah, that's another important lesson. There's a burn rate and you know what that burn rate is. And every entrepreneur knows when they're going to run out of money based on current patterns. And even with crazy growth that you've had, it doesn't change the story. That's really interesting. So when I go back and listen to what we had talked about earlier, we talked the first time. I guess you've touched on some of these things. The one that you just mentioned briefly that I'd like to hear more about, you had said you're looking for big partnership, in quotes, effort, and in retail and also in e-commerce. And you mentioned Dick. So how'd that happen? They're gigantic Dick Sporting Goods. They carry all kinds of exercise equipment, no doubt. How did you make that deal work? Ultimately, that was a relationship that was fostered through Daniel, who knew the new CEO of Dix, who happens to also be a woman CEO. And Dix actually has an initiative around supporting women athletes and sort of empowerment in 2021. So that was really sort of a nice match. So for a lot of ways, there was just a really easy synergy for a product that was going to be a great product for home fitness, which has been a huge market for Dix in the last year, as you can imagine, a product that was going to be great for team training and athletes, young athletes, families, and these are all the core demographic of Dix. And so it was really a no-brainer in terms of, is this something that makes sense? What was harder was to then negotiate the contracts and come up with a pricing strategy and model and what SKUs were we going to launch with in the Dix stores and make all of those strategic decisions and negotiations so that we could really make it work. They were a great partner. Obviously, Daniel was very influential in that, but they were also a great partner in supporting a startup, like an early stage startup like ours, in just helping us along with what this first year looks like in terms of the negotiation and the pricing and the margins and what ultimately we want 2022 to look like. 
we worked with their corporate team. Not that it wasn't hard work, but in terms of just the teamwork, it felt very representative of the idea of team training, what they do and what I do. And it was very much in the spirit of, hey, let's bring a great product to the stores, be able to launch it on the update. We wanted to be able to announce it April 9th. So the clock ticked from January 1st to April 9th. And I think we did about a year of work in 90 days, <laughs> you know, because then they said that they were like, we've never launched a product this fast ever wow. <laughs> and put it on shelves. And so we put product on shelves on April 7th. We decided that we were going to roll this out in a hundred locations where Dick's had expanded their fitness and exercise offerings, partly due to the pandemic. They couldn't keep dumbbells on the shelves, you know, on the weight racks. And so they thought, OK, this is a great place to pilot. The product is in these hundred stores you know, start to see what's selling, what's moving, what's popular to get a sense of our displays and our signage and our in-store merchandising, our fulfillment, our replenishment, and really seemed like something we could wrap our arms around. Although I'm quickly realizing 100 stores, that's a lot of locations are all over the country. That's geography everywhere. I mean, there's this whole new set of challenges that very quickly have been put on our desk. I actually have a team member who's focused almost exclusively now on pivoted from her role in production and more on the operation side and really to own that channel and that partnership and make sure that we knock it out of the ballpark. Yeah, that is such a big deal. And you've got to make it work because every other retailer will look at that. And Dix is a world class retailer. They know what they're doing. They're perfect for you, I think, given what they sell. I've been dealing with all this more personally. Your mom. You got a lot of things going on and now you're running this startup that's super hot. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's good to keep it real, you know, because I have gotten, I think, pretty good at figuring out the compartmentalization of time that I have to spend as what I call the primary parent. Day over day, I have from 9.30 to 6 o'clock, I have a combination of preschool and childcare. But I also have a spouse who is a surgeon and leaves at 5 a.m. So that still leaves from 5 to 9.30 where I'm it. I do every breakfast. I do every wake up. I do getting dressed. I do getting ready for school. I pack lunches. I pack backpacks. I drive to school. I do the drop off. And then I head to work and I really compartmentalize those hours I have to make phone calls and to get my strategic work done, get writing, you know, anything where I need to be really fresh. And then I have hours in the morning, sometimes before 5 a.m., sometimes from six to seven while there's movies happening. And then in the evening after bedtime, I also, Ben's also back sometimes late in the evening, very unpredictable. If he's in the operating room, nothing to be done. So I have to always be on, like my ability to maintain that reliability is paramount for the girls. There's no question that would just be a constant stressor and sort of day to day if you didn't compartmentalize and say, this is the life you chose to live. Everybody has their choice with this. That's the way I do it. And then some hours on the weekend. There's no question I'm not spending 19 hours a day grinding away only on the startup. And I'd like to think that that's something that ultimately is going to be valuable versus detract from the success of the company. I think the fact that I walk away from it and spend the time with my family, create balance that's necessary, whether I like it or not. I'd like to think that's something that we could sort of as a society and as a business community foster and champion and not frown upon, which I think, unfortunately, is the culture of some of the past. It's like, wow, that must really compromise your ability to be a leader. 
And I think that's really a shame. I think there's a dangerous precedent to set that there has to be one primary caregiver and then one CEO. I'm both with, of course, the caveat that you have to have the child care day over day. So during the pandemic, extra challenges, of course, is pretty hard. But I also think with my team, I think it also fosters a great culture, though, with the team because they see me having balance and having kids and talking about my family. And so they know that that matters to me and that I respect that in them and their lives as well. And those things are really important right now because we're all sort of facing mental health challenges and struggles and from isolation and all of these things. And so I like to think that we're actually kind of living our best fit fighter lives when it comes to strength and fostering a healthier, happier lifestyle that has some balance. Thanks for sharing that. In fact, I do think we're entering a new era of business, we could fairly say, is post-pandemic. A lot of people are rethinking what they want to do with their lives and how they're doing it, along with all kinds of other changes going on, how businesses run, where people are living. And I know for my students, 28, 30 years old, about to be entered the workforce, MBA students with great opportunities, they are really thinking a lot about the same issues you're talking about. Uh, men and women alike about wanting to be the ones that have partners in general, wanting to be a dad or a mom and wanting to contribute, wanting to make a difference and wanting to have a big job that fulfills their aspirations. And how to make that happen is just you're living it. So you're providing a good role model. I also think you're the face of the company. The company is about wellness. And that obviously includes mental wellness as well. Leaving aside even the fact that exercise is one of the best ways to enhance your mental wellness. So it's got that going on as well. I applaud you for not just what you're doing, but what you're saying. I think that's a message that I hope you never feel like you're in a position where you have to apologize to anyone about this. This is a strength, not a weakness. And when people don't see that, it's on them, not on you. Mm. Well, I really appreciate that sentiment because I do think that there's that whole kind of parent guilt thing that you feel like sometimes that's shifting. Like you said, I agree with that. And I'd love to be a loud voice to help with that cultural shift. But there's no question that you start from that place of being apologetic or as if you're doing something that's outside of the norm or something that you have to sort of make amends for. So I think it's a great sentiment that we shift the culture so that that's not no longer the case, but it's more the norm than not. I don't like to apologize for doing the right thing. <laughs> I'll apologize <laughs> if I haven't communicated it well, <laughs> but I don't like to apologize for doing the right thing. That's just me. Yeah. So, Sarah, this is a great update. I'm really excited to continue to hear about what you're doing. <laughs> I don't know why I should feel proud. I haven't done anything about it, but you're a former student, so I'm definitely proud. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're going to check in probably one more time in a few months. How about a couple of headlines of what we should be looking at? We haven't even talked about when it would be, but maybe in the fall. So goals over the next six months, get laser focus on growing our community and our membership, you know, all over the country, all over the nation on really planting Fit Fighter as a household name in health and wellness and as a real game changer, not just a great new product in the market, but I want to really plant our feet solidly as a name that people know. And I don't think that six months is too aggressive in terms of the time frame for us to really do that. So we'll be growing that direct-to-consumer business and you'll sort of see us a lot more. That means really growing that paid media and really focusing in the growth of the brand and the sales. I'd love to be in another hundred Dick Sporting Goods stores minimum by that point. I mean, what I'd love to do is start having steel hoses fly off the shelf now and have that be a reason for us to grow as fast as possible. There's 750 Dick Sporting Goods stores around the entire country. I love to be in every one of those storefronts. 
So that is focus number two. Then I would say focus number three is going to be on solidifying the experiential nature of what we're doing. So not just a great digital membership or people are getting great training and workouts, but if you come see one of my live trainings, one of the things I do is I talk about mindset. I make connections for people in their lives, their strength and what they're doing with us and how it's actually woven into the fabric of their successes and failures every day and make them strong for whatever they want to do. As you say, people with big ambitions, and that starts with strength. That starts with that inner strength. I would like to grow into my own presentation and live performances and experiences that I deliver for people as something that I think is a real special sauce of mine. And a vision that I think was hard to imagine till we had a real direct-to-consumer audience and enough of a customer base to be delivering experiences to lots of people, thousands of people. The new age of the Fit Fighter live performance and what that discipline is and represents is something I'm really nurturing and growing and something that would be quite different than any other, quote, home fitness brand or health and wellness brand out there. So stay tuned for what that looks like in the future. That's great. And that's really interesting to think about the performance side of it as a special event or special events. I like that. So in the music business, all the money is in performance. Why do people go to university as opposed to take an online class? There's an experiential side to it. And I think this is true in a lot of industries. And I don't think we've seen it in fitness. I mean, we have Peloton and all of the different classes that they have, and they're great, but it's not exactly, I think, what you're talking about. So that'll be really interesting to see. All right, Sarah, thanks again for chatting with us on round two. We'll look forward to talking to you in the fall. In the meantime, be well, and we're going to look forward to following your saga some more. (laughs) Okay, thanks, Ed. The third and final segment of my conversation with Sarah took place on October 18th, 2021, six months after the last conversation that you just listened to. I think you'll see how things have developed for the business and that no matter how much you do, there are always new challenges. It's a permanent cycle for any entrepreneur, but I found that to be a permanent cycle in some ways for anyone who has really high aspirations. Some people do the same things in their jobs and they do it well. For these people, there are new things to do, but they tend to be somewhat related to each other and to what they've done already in the past. Then there are people with jobs or careers that are multifaceted, entrepreneurs, certainly venture capitalists, professors, some investors, doctors, senior executives, teachers, parents, where there's always, I mean, always something new to do. What I find interesting are those people who purposely choose these professions. And there are more than the few that I just mentioned, to be sure. And they choose it because of the variety and by direct extension, the learning. Then there are people who create opportunities for themselves when their jobs don't, to experience the same joy of trying new things, of learning and relearning, of creating new experiences, of seeing life almost as an ongoing series of interlocked experiences. I like all that. I mean, I really like that. And I've been lucky enough to live my own life in this way, to create a life where you're an entrepreneur of your own life. Whether or not you're actually starting a business, it's not the point. It's whether you're creating and seeking opportunities to experience new things and to learn along the way. It's really a mindset. And I think we all can do that. I brought a bunch of entrepreneurs to the Sidcast this season. And maybe one of the reasons is that I'm inherently attracted to and find interesting people who build uncertainty into their lives by moving out of their comfort zone, experimenting and learning and building, if not a company, then their own life. All right, let's go back to this third segment with Sarah Apgar, where we'll start where we left off in segment two, 
I'll be back for a very quick comment after this third segment as well. Welcome back to the SIDCast for round three with Sarah Apgar. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? (laughs) Fantastic. On a sunny day. So excited to be here. It's been maybe five or six months since round two. And so a lot has happened. And I think we should just get down the business and hear your update. We just wrapped up in the second segment where you were talking about growth opportunities. You hope to get a COO. You talked about growing your community. And also really interesting is when you talked about the fit fighter performances that you were doing, the live performances, which I find really interesting because I've always wondered what Netflix will do because Netflix is doing gaming apparently. And Peloton sometimes talks about themselves as being a Netflix type of model, which they're not quite there, but I see where that's coming from. So there's kind of a melding of industries. But anyways, what's the update on some of those targets that you set out a while ago? Let's take it from the top. We had definitely still been kind of riding the wave, that rocket ship from our Shark Tank experience in November when we spoke last. And so there has been a huge transition simply in the fact that we figured out, I think, where that wave started to settle down and drift into shore. That was a milestone for me in the sense that it helped me to understand where we truly were in our growth trajectory as a company because Shark Tank was such a shot out of a cannon type of moment for us. It was sort of like hold on to your seat cushion for a while there, fulfilling all of our production challenges that we've talked about before, learning about the consumer market on fast forward because we never intended to be in the consumer market so quickly in the growth of this business. And so that was a really pivotal time for me in the May, June, July timeframe where we realized from an organic growth standpoint where we stood I was able to refocus our priorities so that we could both continue to now grow our consumer market and focus in on the infrastructure that we needed to continue to grow that market, but then also gave us an opportunity to return to the professional market and the channel partnerships where we started back in 2019. And that I had said to you a couple of times, I always do was going to be the long term, the value of this business and having this omni-channel approach to our growth. Channel partners are extremely important for us. The trusted professional in the fitness industry, the coach, the high school and collegiate coach, the tactical athlete, the tactical unit and training officer, you know, all of these partners are touching our clients and our consumers. And it's very important for us as a fitness brand that we're seated at the highest levels of the industry have the credibility and the validation from those who are influential in our community because there is a lot of garbage out there that you and I talked about a couple of times. And the fitness industry actually drives me crazy. I think I said at one point to you, like it actually drives me crazy our industry a lot of times. And so we're able to now return our focus to some of those original heartbeat from 2019 and now think on a much more manageable path. And that also the harsh realities set in of what your month over month operating costs and needs are, what it takes to grow a team and to make the investments that we need to. And so we've actually just launched a second seed round fundraise that I hope to close by the end of this year. We're now on the path to fundraising in the post Shark Tank world of Fit Fighters growth. And that's an extremely exciting time and milestone. Is that towards angels at this stage or actually venture firms? 
I'm looking at both. We're casting a very broad net initially because I'm really looking for a strategic partner or set of partners in this round, whereas we have a great initial partnership with Daniel Lebetsky, who's a tremendous partner for me. But to add a set of partners who really knows the industry really well can add a strategic focus for us and help me on the growth strategy for this omni-channel path that we're on is really what I'm looking for. So that might be a combination of a lead from a VC firm and individual investors. We've already closed a early round. I'll probably have like a double, a two-part close for this round so that we can just keep feeding the business with the capital and the fuel that it needs. And so I expect it to be a small, tight group of great strategic partners for me on a roughly a $2 million round at an $8 million pre is what we're looking at. That's great. So strategic partner, that's very different, obviously, than venture or even angel. But that sounds like the right way to build up the company. You were working with Dick Sporting Goods because it's all in the works. I have to say whether that's a potential strategic partner, but have you expanded that relationship? Like, where does that stand? Yeah, Dix is extremely important for us. We launched April 9th, and I think you and I spoke soon after that launch. Dix Sporting Goods remains, for me, a top three priority for us because that is a channel partner that helps us to reach the consumer market. And it's that credibility and validation piece, of course. And then also, this is the one place where you can walk into 106 exporting goods locations all around the country and touch and feel our equipment. It's the only physical place that we have other than that our factory studio in Port Washington, New York, where you can actually wander in and get a sense of the fairy dust that the steel hose is when you start to touch and feel because it's such a tactile. And we've talked about that. We have such a tactile product. We're really redefining what the free weight means for the first time in a thousand years. People don't understand what that means until they get a feel for what this is and this whole conceptually what that is. What is our product and why is it so different? Dix is extremely important for those reasons. And the biggest challenge we have right now with that relationship is to create a connection between their biggest markets and their sport-specific areas of their business and product offerings and the steel hose as the perfect complement to that, the perfect add-to-cart element, addition to cart, we call it, for anyone who's looking to train for, whether it's a youth athlete or whether it's a golfer, they have their Golf Galaxy partnership. And so all of these are channels for us. And that seal hose is intended to be a tool for people to be able to train and prevent injury in their everyday lives with whatever they love to do, whether athletes or not. That's really how the Dix partnership has evolved and why I feel it's so important and we'll be in continuing to invest in that. It looks like you have a little visitor there. I do. And I'm, I was going to say, I do. And just back from, I think, the playground. and Because you're a working mom entrepreneur and it's perfectly appropriate for one of your kids to come on the SIDCast as well. That's right. Why well, I was going to say you're hearing Arlen in the background. She's four, Emery's five. And I think she probably came in the door with grandma and snuck quickly down here to where we are. So I think grandma will probably come in in a minute and okay. retrie <laughs> retrieve. She's sneaky, that one. It's all standard practice for Zoom. <laughs> yeah. Zooming era. I, I remember right. way before we knew about Zoom, I used to work at home. We lived in LA when I started working, really. Our daughter was born there. I remember she would come in from mommy and me or babysitter or something, walk up the steps. You hear the little steps. <laughs> And then she'd peek in the door because she knew, you know, you're not supposed to disturb daddy, but she'd peek in the door and 
And of course, what do you do but just say, come in my lap because it's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. What can you do to increase the likelihood that people are going to buy something at Dick's when they see it? It's kind of like merchandising skills. And you're not there and you're competing with some people that have store reps, no doubt, that are always going there and making sure everything looks right. How do you manage that type of relationship when you're so small? Yeah, that's the $64 million question, Sid. And I think that is our single biggest challenge in the next 90 days as we head into Q4 here and we're heading into the holiday season. We're heading into the new year, which is a huge quarter in our industry. It's huge for Dick Sporting Goods. It's big for us. And so I am really doubling down right now on where we have points of leverage. Since, as you stated, the reality is that I don't have a big department dedicated towards making sure that products flying off the shelves there. I don't have someone who can go in top 10 cities and visit these two or three stores and ensure that the team is trained. And so what we've done is we have invested in two things. Number one, in training the staffs virtually. So me being personally involved in training the fitness staffs and store managers at each of these locations, making sure that at the very least, if someone is shopping in the fitness and exercise section and the store team asks what they're looking for, what their needs are, that we're always top of mind. And so that's something I've invested in that is sort of a long-term investment, not, of course, necessarily immediately producing conversion. But then the second thing is, again, working with where we do have leverage would be on the digital side. Dix obviously has a huge distribution when it comes to digital across its different sports from an email marketing standpoint, digital advertising standpoint. And so what we're trying to do is create assets that are connecting, that are making Fit Fighter show up in that conversation and be present in those assets that are distributed. And Dix has been an incredible partner to us in at least letting me sort of fight that good fight to provide assets for them so that we can show up in an email marketing campaign that evolves softball, soccer, and golf as fall sports for youth athletes and for others so that we will show up in a soccer fitness focus, you know, fitness for soccer, that this is something that's a product that Dix also offers. And it's not just body weight training that is provided as a resource, as a pro tip, which is one of the things that Dix does for its customers, for its athletes. So those are two ways in which we've worked to double down and make sure that we're showing up and we're part of the conversation. People at least understand what Fit Fighters product offering is and that it belongs on people's radar exactly the way that the baseball bat or the golf club or the soccer ball is or the team uniform for fall sport. But it's a boulder up a mountain for sure type of effort. And it's very important that over the next 90 days, successful and continuing to increase the velocity of sales at Dick's so that we can continue that partnership and to be doing our meeting the objectives on our side of the equation. I could see that being really crucial. And of course, you're coming up to a holiday season, which I'm not quite sure how seasonal you'll discover your business to be. I'm sure it will be somewhat, but actually maybe quite a bit because, you know, the old story about January 1st rolls around. We all have our resolutions and we all, we all say, yeah, we're going to get back into shape and gym memberships go through the roof. So maybe you've already discovered that that's part of your business as well as seasonality. <laughs> I'm sort of excited. Last holiday season, we went on air right before Thanksgiving. 
So I was just drowning in production woes and late product and getting things shipped out sort of the Shark Tank aftermath. And so I'm really excited to be focusing now on preparing for the holiday season, thinking about January 1st. And for all the reasons you described, I do think we'll find that that's big for us. You know, we're looking at gift guides, um, big push to PR push to get into as many gift guides as possible and be the solution for a time when people are doubling down on fitness. I don't like for New Year, do you, to become sort of this cliche thing that we're sort of peddling to people. But the reality is that things do cyclically become top of mind. And I want to be part of every conversation where somebody is thinking about something, reengaging with fitness or committing to a new workout resolution for Gen 1. Yeah. I mean, this is when there is that share of mind, the attention. The customer is looking, which is a very nice thing. Let's talk about building the team. Your goal of hiring a COO and I guess I have an inkling already of what you're going to say, but maybe you could share what that was like and how do you do a thing like that? Because that's a second in command, right? That's right. So it took me seven months since I started really doubling down on spending 20 to 25 percent of my time every day on this process. Wow. Let's pause. Every day, the process of hiring a COO or building up the team more generally, that much time. That much time. Wow. Yeah, that much time. If you add up everything peripherally related to that, the networking, the initial conversations, the LinkedIn research, just the thoughtfulness on who would be a really great partner for me. I never had one of the things I think you and I talked about a couple of times is that I never had a co-founder. I've had great people at the table with me, friends, strategic advisors from the beginning and a couple of terrific early team members, but I never had that person who you'd call up three or four or five times a day, especially at the beginning, chat through things with, knows everything about you and about the company, that true partner. And so for me, I was sort of filling that in with these friends and family investors and friends, and I really, really sought that. And so over time, I honed in on what would be my priorities, my three or four priorities in this person, and ended up hiring a wonderful woman named Sabina Ahmad, who happens to also be a Tuck grad. And actually, I found through the Tuck Networks, as one expects of the Tuck Network, lots of folks went to bat for me and reached out to their friends. I wrote up a sort of profile of the type of person that I was looking for, sent it out broadly on LinkedIn and to the Tuck Alumni Network. And so I had a flood of interest, of course, come in from the network and was thrilled that that ended up being something that we shared. So we're just a month into that relationship. So there's a lot to figure out. And this is a huge addition to the team, which, of course, also is a big deal for our team. We have a team of five full time. And, you know, you can imagine, I mean, those other three folks who are extraordinary early stage team members in their approach, attitude, expertise, all hands on decks, early stage style operating op tempo. You know, it's a big deal to sort of say, hey, I'm really looking for a partner to bring on board. And they've been with me for the past two years. Or actually, one of them has been with me for the past two years. The other one I hired in December, right after Shark Tank. And then the final person has been with me about a year. So that's a huge change when you grow your team 20%. And when you're only three people or four people or five people or eight people, that's a big growth <laughs> because it's such a huge change. So that's a big part of my focus right now is actually the culture and thinking about 2022. I've just gone through an offsite, which I conducted with Sabina and two of our investors three weeks ago to prepare for 2022. And one of the four strategic initiatives for 2022 is our internal culture, because I wouldn't say that it's perfect right now. We've been through the ringer 
we're like ups and downs and roller coaster and it's not all sort of hunky-dory early stage overnight success type stuff, which you and I have talked about a lot. It's super, super hard and days are really hard and weeks are hard. And so our culture is very important. And I hope that Sabina and I can work together as partners now, sort of arm in arm to lay the foundation for what will be our culture of growth as we fundraise and start to hire some more team members next year. That's really a big deal. Hiring somebody like that is really one of those guys. But the fact you spend so much time is a good reminder to people. How often do people say, yeah, the most important thing in our company are the people. But I think your thoughtfulness and in going into it and spending that amount of time and energy and networking and everything else speaks to that. I would imagine one of uh, Sabina's challenges, you alluded to this, is for her to build a relationship with those people that were with you before including at the beginning. And for you, no doubt to have communicated effectively with them about why this person is coming in, frankly, a more senior level. Were those challenging conversations or did they get it? How did you manage that? Because that's kind of a critical thing in such a small company. I actually think I didn't appreciate just how hard that was going to be. And I fell back on my heels a little bit as a leader with a couple of the totally valid questions about what's the plan here? Like, what's the big idea? What is Sabina going to be responsible for if we as a team of four have been running the company for the past year, for the past nine months, 12 months, year, 18 months? And I was back on my heels a little bit in answering that. But you know what? I had this beautiful conversation with the first person I ever hired, my first full-time employee last week. And we talked about this and peeled back the onion a little bit in a personal check-in. And she was like, you know, Sarah, like one of the things I was thinking about is you don't have to have an answer to every question that we ask. (laughs) And I so appreciated her for this, Katie. She was like, I mean, I'm going to ask because I want to know, but you don't have to feel like you always have it totally buttoned up. You can say, like, I'm not sure yet, but I really know that this is really important for me to have a partner of this kind. And this is going to be the best thing that's happened to us to continue to grow the company and add in. And like, that's cool with us. She's like, it's worse if you try to come up with an answer that sounds perfect, like you've got it all figured out if you don't. And I was just like, you know, I kind of have goosebumps talking about that because that's a really wonderful example. That's where we are right now. That's where I am as a CEO. I'm learning how to be a leader to my team. They're doing a great job, I think, of giving me feedback like that. We have to have that kind of dialogue at this stage in the company so that we don't have any kind of awkwardness or tension at a time where there's simply just no room for that. I really loved that conversation with my team member and it really was impactful for me. And I know that Sabina's working really hard. Like I was in Dallas all last week at a trade show. So I was like on my feet every day for three days. And she was starting to work to build those relationships behind the scenes back at home with my team and uh, made a comment Friday afternoon to the fact that that's one thing she's been spending a lot of time on and she felt like she made a lot of progress. And so this is the real good stuff. You can't do anything unless you're having this level of dialogue and teamwork that's starting to figure itself out. Otherwise, you just be completely handcuffed to make any progress at all. I want to highlight something you just said, which is basically you don't have to have all the answers, even though you think you have to, especially in a startup actually CEOs of much bigger companies that fall into that trap. But for a startup, with all the resources you've got, and it's probably more than many other very small firms, you still have to know so much. You still have to do so much, but you don't have to do everything. You don't have to know everything. And I would imagine that's empowering for you. 
it's also authentic and real. And when you're the person who's worked for you, I guess said her name is Kate or Katie. When she shares that, first of all, that's quite a good sign that somebody feels comfortable enough to share that to you. Of course, you knew that. But it highlights that people really value honesty, integrity, not the obvious way that we think about it, but just deep down, you're not faking it. We are all real people. We feel like we have to present, especially high achievers, have to present this image to the world of perfection. And it's actually debilitating psychologically, mentally, and practically a bad idea. But we do it because we think somehow we have to be superwoman or superman. So what a great insight in this realization. And one that I just wanted to call it out because I think it's relevant for a lot of other people and a lot of other walks of life. Let's go to that point I brought up at the beginning that I was curious about the show womanship, if that's the right word for it, putting on the show. And you had some thoughts about building that experiential side to it. And part of it is about building the brand. And I think implicitly in that is building the brand around you as the person who is presenting. You don't have a spokesperson. It's you. You're the one who did it. Is that still something that you're looking at in the same way as a really critical thing or it's been a learning experience or how big is that? The performance aspect in terms of business, but also in terms of building the brand. This remains a huge priority for me heading into 2022 to continue to really chip away at this block and figure out what this experiential component of the company is. And I just talked about the four initiatives that we outlined for 2022. A second one to the culture initiative is an initiative that speaks directly to this goal of mine. And that is that we are creating external community engagement. And by external, I mean, we're inspiring engagement of communities across all walks of life and other geographies through our work that we do and through our products and programs that doesn't have to tie directly back into FitFighter. It's not something that's going outbound, but it's something that's now being bred across in almost like a matrix style, right, of people who have experienced FitFighter for whatever reason, whether it's through sports or through our consumer platform or through their personal trainer. And then they've started to embrace this whole new movement discipline and this whole new redefinition of fitness and weightlifting and experiential exercise. And they're maybe even going to get together with their friends like in the park and they're going to grab their hoses and they're going to meet up and do like a quick small group workout. And that we are really going to feed into the idea of the community aspect that many, many fitness brands who've come before me have talk about. And of course, like the biggest example now of who talks about community is the Pelotons of the world. But I'm doing that in a way that's really different. I mean, I haven't done it yet. So we're right on the cusp here. This is sort of the like, stay tuned to be a part of it the next year. But I'm doing this in a different way. I'm not just saying, okay, come be a part of a Fit Fighter community digitally on a platform. I'm saying, Connect with your community, with movement, with strength, with fitness, with exercise in your community and move differently and feel different about your fitness and about the opportunities for you to have this wonderful exercise and health and wellness program in your life and something that other friends of yours and other people in your community have also experienced. And it's out there in the world. It's out at a distance from me and from FitFighter and from us and from our sort of nexus. And so that's really different. 
Certainly, you'll come find our programs on our platform. Certainly, you'll be a subscription member. But then I don't need you to be always like logging on, signing on all the time, four times a week. I'm cool if you come back for the education and the inspiration and the experience with my coaches. And then you are carrying that out into your life in all of these different ways. And so that extension, that sort of go-go gadget arm pushing that outward, outbound in a way that I'm not hearing other fitness brands talk about is what I'm committed to from an experiential standpoint. And I definitely am still Super Bowl halftime show 2025. Mark my words, that's the kind of thing that I think then proves that we've created an experience around Fit Fighter, something that's a really different discipline. It's like the next yoga versus just being a delivery of fitness, which is what a Peloton or a mirror is or a tonal, you know, they're delivering fitness that people have known before, cycling, weightlifting. And I am creating a new discipline of fitness rather than just delivering what we've always known. That's my North Star when it comes to this idea that I have that's very, very nascent, but that I'm going to continue to work on and to hone in on as and even give a name. It doesn't have a name yet. Is it hosology? Is it imbalanced weight training? I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it is something that I know when I deliver experiences now, the feedback is always very positive and people are sort of scratching their heads saying like, wow, I've never experienced anything like that before. And that ranges from an ESPN Women in Sports Summit to my small group lives that I run twice a week for a group of middle-aged women. I'm after something really big there. It's not fully or well-defined yet, but stay tuned. Wow, that's a fantastic aspiration to have because now all of a sudden you're making people think, yeah, you are going to create something in the same sentence that people describe yoga or mindfulness if you want to go even bigger. That's very different than selling an exercise equipment or an exercise class. Very, very different. So I have to ask you because you brought up a couple of times the four priorities. You mentioned one around culture and the second around this kind of experiential creation of an experience that's different. What are the other two? The first is the omni-channel strategy fundamental to our business rather than going after only a consumer model or starting only with a professional channel partnership track. We have decided as a team and also with our friends and family investors and our current investor group that it's very important that we have this 360 degree approach that we're not starting with, as one might say, is the idea typically in business, right? Where you don't want to be stretching yourself too thin. You want to be going after one channel first. But we've decided that given the fact that there's such an important discovery and education and validation and credibility component to what we're doing because it's unfamiliar and it's brand new, we need people to discover Fit Fighter in their gym. We need personal trainers to recommend Fit Fighter to their clients and put steel hoses in their homes. We need to have a consumer platform because we have 10,000 consumers who now have hoses in their homes. We believe that an omnichannel strategy is very important to the growth of this business and that there are more risks associated to doubling down only in one channel. So that's the first initiative to choose the three to five key channels that within that omni-channel strategy, because of course we could do 12 or 15 as well. So we're going to choose those couple that's forthcoming. And then the second initiative is a national press strategy that is focused on the message of redefining weightlifting as we know it. So one of the core tenets of FitBiter is that we're redefining what people have always thought about lifting weights. That's for power lifters. 
you have to go to the gym and you have to have a rack of dumbbells. It's geographically oriented. You can't take it with you. And it's not a fundamental part of 90% of the population's lives. I'm here to totally redefine what we lifting means to people and how they think of it. Strength training is important for 100% of people. We know that it increases our bone health, our immunity. It's critical for our long-term health. It increases our muscle mass. It gives us our balance, prevents injury. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And yet less than 10% of the population does any kind of strength training. If you were to ask me whether I should go for a run or lift weight, I'll tell you every day of the week and twice on Sundays, you should lift weight. Cardio training is great too, but lifting weight is also giving you that metabolic component that the cardiovascular training does. And in the long term, it's much more important for your long-term health. So that message is not well understood. And I'm so small as a brand that we feel we need a press strategy in which we heavily invest to associate us with that message. I think that's a great idea. Of those four, it's interesting to think about. I mean, culture is the internal one. But the one that I asked you about the experience side and basically kind of creating a movement. If you do the other three, you're going to be a successful business. If you do the fourth one, this movement, that's totally different. That's a whole other level. And I love that aspiration. The fact that you don't have a name for it, the fact that you're not sure exactly right, how could you have that all figured out ahead of time? Movements are not designed by a McKinsey boardroom uh, (laughs) to draw it all out. There's a big organic element to that, but you have to be out there to do that. So good for you. Very exciting. I'm glad to have that latitude. (laughs) That's right. So you don't have to know everything all the time, all at once. That's one I'm going to be really curious about seeing. Well, I'll know about it because if it's a movement, Even up here in Hanover, New Hampshire, we'll discover a movement eventually. (laughs) (laughs) It's just about time to wrap up. And let me just ask you personally about what this journey has been like. And you've shared, you have two girls and you're a primary caregiver in many ways because your partner, your husband has a very big job himself. I think he's a surgeon and now you're a startup CEO and now you're leading a team of five and you have investors. There's a lot. How are you doing this and how do you feel about it? I'm really glad that I feel this groundswell of energy around ensuring that there is a recognition and support for leaders of businesses of all kinds. And certainly that I feel as an entrepreneur to focus on mental health, to focus on the kind of making sure that health and wellness of each of us is something that is top of mind. Because I'll tell you, I'm not surprised. I think I probably said this once before. I definitely see how entrepreneurs a lot of times get completely burned out. I totally understand how they become substance abusers. I totally get this because there are definitely times when I feel like I'm taking a nosedive off the cliff. I've had my four-year-old's been up at night, so I haven't slept enough. And then I'm trying to have a strong, productive workday. And then I've got seven things to answer to with them and their school and their preschool. And Ben's not around because in the world of COVID-19, it's put strain on already strained healthcare system. And so I definitely have my moments and I've had to proactively focus on creating disciplines and a schedule for the day where I can make everything sustainable and manageable and be okay also with the fact that you always want to create more hours in the day and you always wish you could have done seven more things that day. But being okay with that and trying to see that as a good thing, that the girls will take me away for a couple of hours from my work and that that's actually a good thing from a mental standpoint, from a business standpoint. So yeah, I'd say it's a roller coaster. It's not for the faint of heart. 
And it's extremely important that we as leaders, definitely, I think my team is going to be lucky in the sense that when I have moms on my team and people take maternity leave and people who have some of the characteristics I have. You lived it, you get it. That's right. (laughs) It's definitely tough sometimes. I definitely won't sugarcoat that fact at all. And I've had to focus on the mental health aspect a lot. Thanks for sharing that. Finally, we're beginning to see people talk about this a little bit more. It gets back to what we touched on earlier about how you have to almost pretend or have this face of the world. Maybe even especially when you're an entrepreneur and you're raising money and people giving you money, not giving you, but investing money. There's no room for any sign of weakness. And in fact, we know that that's exactly wrong, but we do that on ourselves. It turns out people that are human and demonstrate some degree of vulnerability, because that's what we all have, they are respected more by others. They're trusted more by others because they're not faking it. They're real. That's right. This discussion is really valuable, far beyond our little conversation on a startup, but people in organizations and, of course, anyone thinking about starting their own business as well. Sarah, you've been generous with your time on three rounds, and each time I learn something new, and I just think it's really interesting. And really the reason why I wanted to do this, as it happens, mini-series within the SIDCAT, I just think it's so interesting to explore and listen as someone is going through really interesting and challenging situations and how they think it through, how they adapt, how they pivot, how they adjust and what they learn. So thanks so much. Maybe we'll check in with you before or maybe after that Super Bowl in 2025. We'll see. Make sure you're watching. Put it on your calendar. (laughs) Wouldn't miss it for the world. Sarah Apgard, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a delight. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you learned something, not only about Sarah and Fit Fighter, of course, but about yourself along the way. Talking to people like Sarah and the Sidcast for me has been as inspiring as it's been just plain fun. And I hope you got a dose of both of those things from listening to this episode. Well, this brings us to the end of season three. And I just want to say thank you for listening. Whether you tuned in to an occasional episode or one of my many regular listeners who don't miss a week, even if it takes a few weeks to catch up here and there. I started this podcast because I wanted to have really in-depth conversations with fascinating people who had stories to tell about themselves and about their work, about their families, about their history, about their lives. And stories that would not only be interesting for you to listen to, but maybe even learn along the way. And I know I have learned a ton from so many people. Learning about the person I'm talking to, but learning about yourself as well. I'm going to regroup and get ready for season four over the next few months. I'm not ready to stop. And I hope you'll stick with me as we continue. In the interim, before season four begins, probably in late spring, I'll be posting on LinkedIn and other social media whenever there's something going on in the news or in life where a past conversation I've had with a guest on the Sidcast might be timely and relevant. And maybe I have a couple other little things I'll toss out there during the off season, so to speak. For those of you who said to me, I need to catch up, you're going too fast. And there have been a few of you. Well, you now have that chance to catch up to with all the episodes. For those of you who have suggested potential guests and have even made the introductions to make that happen, thank you. And for anyone who wants to be part of the show, now you have some time to review your own Rolodex to see if there's someone you know who we should bring to the Sidcast podcast platform. Finally, and most importantly, I hope you will continue to look for new ways to learn and new ways to experience life. We only get one shot. We certainly know that now, given the world we're in. We get one shot, and in our modern era, of seemingly never-ending pandemics, we just cannot be waiting any longer to take that shot. If it's true that everyone has a story, then it must be equally true 
that we are all the writers and creators of our own stories. I say, let's get busy writing our stories right now. See you in a few months. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.